Um, I'm Charlie Mossler. I'm going to be teaching on this topic a little bit this, this afternoon. Um, and to kind of let you know where this topic is going, last year, it was probably around May or so, um, I was having a, an email conversation. I'm going to trip myself on this thing for sure. Um, I, I had an email conversation with some of the, the people that put, the, the, put together all the continuing education and, and other activities um, here. And, and they had a lot of requests to do just little brief hits on some of the, the more obscure sorts of stuff that some people bring back. Now, we all know, probably, what, what do you think the most common thing is that somebody who's serving in the field, whether short-term, long-term, whatever, brings back with them? G, some sort of GI disturbance, right? Some sort of, you know, well, 15 trips to the bathroom that day. Um, some sort of activity along those lines. So, now, in this topic, we're not really going to be delving into any of the, the uh, diarrheal sorts of, of things, but some more of the, the other things that occasionally do come back. Um, disclosure, as with everything, um, we have to disclose. I have no financial interest in anything I'm going to be talking about. Um, and just for the, the pharmacy CE perspective, which I am a pharmacist, we also have to talk about the off-label use. Well, you guys who have worked overseas or at all know that we use all kinds of stuff off-label. And so this topic I have to disclose, we will be doing some discussion of off-label um, use because, well, most of them, they don't, the FDA doesn't really approve anything for the treatment of Ebola, right? Um, so, so a lot of things we have to look at from a, a different perspective than what the FDA usually has. Um, can everybody hear me all right? I, I would rather not have to carry this microphone around too. So if, if anyone can't hear me, please stop me, and I will, though. Um, so, so pretty much we're going to look through um, through uh, you know, six of the different things that occasionally do make it back. And, and some of it, I'm sure a lot of you already know, but some of it you might find a little eye-opening, um, especially the Chagas disease. I think a lot of times people are not aware of how much Chagas disease actually is in the United States. And so, um, so we'll look at some of the different things with those. First, we're going to start with the one that everybody knows, right? You know, last year this time, um, you know, it was still a common occurrence in the nightly news. Um, and if any of you were here last year, you got to hear from a lot of the, the people who actually had been working or even themselves had Ebola. And so Ebola is something that everybody at least knows that much about, right? So, you know, we can't not talk about Ebola without talking about the, the big outbreak. That, that actually is still ongoing a little bit. We don't hear about it. Um, it's largely died out, but there are still some cases of it. So some statistics from uh, a few weeks ago. There were 28,000 um, infections in Africa as part of this uh, outbreak, with over 11,000 11, 11, deaths. Um, looking at it, most of Africa and the other places where we actually had some transmission, including here in the United States, have been declared Ebola virus free, at least for now. Um, however, there has still been some transmission in Guinea and Sierra Leone, um, two of the, the very hard-hit countries, and they do still have some of it occurring there. Again, very sporadically, a handful of cases here and there, um, but there is still a little bit. Um, this is, is kind of a map just to, to show you where it was, how prevalent it was, and then I think you know, some of the, the interesting statistics, the dark red are the number of deaths, the lighter red are, are just the, the number of cases. And so you can see Guinea, um, you know, that dark red circle as a proportion of the whole circle itself um, is very significant. And so those are the three main countries where we saw it, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. And again, um, Liberia has, has been declared Ebola-free. Looking at it, how did it start? Well, we think we know. Um, Ebola virus is one of those things that pops up sporadically. This 2014 outbreak we think has been traced back actually now to 2013 um, with a two-year-old child 
in, in a small, tiny village in the middle of nowhere in Guinea. And how did this child get it? We don't really know for sure. Um, some of the epidemiologists are pretty confident that they've traced it back to a fruit bat. Um, now, those of you who have been to this part of Africa, you'll, you'll know that fruit bats are actually eaten as food um, in, in some of these areas. And so that's where they think this occurred. You know, the, the, the funny thing or strange thing is, at least as far as I know, um, and up until a few months ago I looked this up again, we've never really identified, we've never isolated Ebola virus disease in really any sort of host in nature. So we think it comes from fruit bats and maybe some other things, but we've never really found it. Um, and I've been able to identify it in some of those. So it's, it's hard to tell for sure, but we think this current outbreak um, has been traced back to that two-year-old child. Um, Ebola virus is not new, which is, I think, surprising to many people just out walking around the streets. They think it's the first time they ever heard about it was a year, year and a half ago. Um, but it it's, was first identified at least in 1976, and there was actually two concurrent outbreaks Different strains of Ebola virus, there's five different strains that have since been identified, um, that was happening in Sudan in what at the time was Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, five distinct species, so we had that Sudan species, we had the Zaire species. Um, since then we found a couple other, the Bundabugyo and the Thai forest. And then Reston. Can anyone tell me anything about Reston Ebola virus, where that was found? It wasn't Africa. Yeah, suburb of Washington, D.C. in the United States. So Reston, Virginia, um, was actually an outbreak. Now, that was in monkeys um, in a laboratory environment um, that did have Ebola virus. Um, and, and so last year was not the first time that there was Ebola virus actually in the United States. Um, it was in the, this, this um, research facility in Reston, Virginia, um, several years ago. All right, so pathogenesis. How does one get Ebola virus from person to person? There's all sorts of stories last year, right, about how just looking at somebody and you might get Ebola virus. You know, and it could even be looking at them in a newspaper, it seemed like, and you could get Ebola virus from that person. Um, but no, it's, it's a little more difficult to catch than that. It's, it's not something that, that is necessarily easily transferred from one person to the other. Um, and looking at it, where do you find it? You find it in different secretions from the body. Uh, whether it's nasal secretions, whether it's any sort of body fluid, that's where you can find it. And so contact with those and then contact with your own, you know, mucous membranes can lead to, can lead to you getting that. You also can get it from, you know, needle sticks, any sort of way that you usually can commonly get most viruses, you can definitely get Ebola virus. So it's, it's not that it's any more pathogenic. It's really not a whole lot more pathogenic as far as transmissibility than the, the seasonal flu that we're all exposed to constantly. You know, there's obviously some differences in that we at least have a vaccine um, that's, other than last year, pretty effective against seasonal flu. Um, but the Ebola virus, that's still an ongoing thing where we're still trying to really get a good uh, vaccine developed for it. Initial symptoms. How many of you ever had those four symptoms at the same time? Fever, chills, malaise, and myalgia. I think we've all, just by being human, at one time or another, had probably all four of those. So it's very easy to confuse, at least in the initial stages, with other sorts of diseases. And a lot of times that's why even in, in Africa, where occasionally you do get Ebola cropping up, it looks like malaria. It looks like dengue. It looks like other sorts of fevers that are commonly 
that common, more commonly than Ebola occur there. And so that's a lot of times why these big things, these big outbreaks with Ebola pop up is because they weren't recognized for what it was initially and then not treated appropriately, not quarantined appropriately. And so very, very easy to confuse with other things. Other diseases as the, or other symptoms as this disease progresses become more and more severe. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard the different, you know, the, the physicians who were in Liberia last year, the American missionaries, you know, the different th- symptoms that they went through. And you can hear a lot of these symptoms that they had. So what starts to affect the GI, respiratory tract, um, maybe even convulsions in, in some severe forms, liver failure, kidney failure, um, and other more common as it starts to occur or as it starts to, to um, progress. Hemorrhagic symptoms, again, for the few people in the non-medical world who'd heard of Ebola prior to last year, you, you speak the word Ebola and all, immediately they start thinking of people bleeding from every single orifice. You know, that was kind of how Hollywood and others had, had you know, personalized, how they had, how they had told the story. And, and the reality is, is, is only about, not even, 50% of cases of Ebola actually developed the hemorrhagic, fe- the, the hemorrhagic part of it. Um, typically, it's limited to the GI, so when you do start to get a lot of bleeding, usually limited to the GI, um, and usually not enough blood loss to lead to death. So it's not like somebody bleeds out, typically, from Ebola. Why does this occur? Why is the whole hemorrhagic? We don't really know, but it's thought that these coagulation irregularities play a role, and, and in some of the treatments, when we start looking at some of the experimental treatments now they're using, um, they're starting to look at what can we do to reverse some of these coagulation abnormalities that we see. Diagnosis, you know, as we mentioned, there's a very large differential. It's very difficult on baseline symptoms to identify if somebody has Ebola, if it's another sort of virus. So usually you have to go into more doing the RT-PCR, ELISA testing, um, or direct viral identification. If you are able to identify this little guy here, um, on, on a micrograph or microscope, then you're, you usually can tell what you're dealing with. Treatments, largely supportive. Isolate the patient and then treat whatever symptoms he or she is having. Fluid, electrolytes, very, 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 very important to these individuals that you start correcting those abnormalities right away. Antibiotics, kind of like with malaria, a lot of times with malaria we can see super infections of bacteria because the virus, um, in the case of Ebola, has just trashed the immune system. The immune system is doing everything it can to fight off Ebola. That now, common respiratory infections, common urinary tract infections, and others can just blow up above and beyond what they normally would. So antibiotics are very important, as are antipyretics to help lower the fever. Some patients, if they start to, if they start to get the renal disease, you might need dialysis. Now, again, middle of Guinea trying to find a dialysis machine is going to be next to impossible. So you're trying to support the patient as best you can with what you have available. All right, so other treatments that we start looking at, and one, some of the ones, the big ones that were in the news, through the, the next two we're going to talk about, ZMAP, um, is actually a composed of three monoclonal antibodies that have been humanized. Um, they've done a study in 18 rhesus monkeys that's been largely published or, or largely referred to, and 100% of those rhesus monkeys survive. Um, unknown at this time about humans. We know of a few cases where it seemed to work, right? Whether or not it was really this, whether or not it's something else, you know, that testing is still ongoing. 
Um, recombinantly manufactured. Does anyone know what these are manufactured in? ZMAP. Tobacco plants. Right down the road, not too far here in Kentucky. Apparently there's a research facility where they grow tobacco plants in a very, you know, sterile, as sterile as you can grow plants environment. And, and they inject um, some of these, the, the antibodies into the leaves of this plant, and then they are able to harvest them after a period of time. They're looking at, as you can imagine, growing plants takes a lot of time. So to get enough of this drug to do, to do much good, you'd have to have farms that are hundreds and thousands of acres large to, to get enough plants to really grow enough um, of, of this antibody. So they're right now trying to ramp up production, looking at mammalian, mammalian cells, cells that you can grow in a laboratory environment like we do a lot of the other monoclonal antibodies that are out there. Um, so right now, production is pretty limited, which has really limited the use of this, even in studies, um, but they are trying to figure it out more. <coughs> TKM Ebola, another one that was largely touted last year. Um, phase 1 trials currently on hold. Why? Well, once they started looking at it, they found that they were not really sure it's making a difference. So phase, in Phase 2 trials... Um, they actually stopped it because of the, the comment there. It was unlikely to demonstrate an overall therapeutic benefit in patients. So it didn't seem in phase two trials like this drug was really doing anything for it. So TKM Ebola you can pretty much write off, at least as of right now, with the research that has been done as being a, a, a future treatment. Blood products. <coughs> Excuse me. So there have been a lot of um, looking into to, uh, the Ebola patients or, or patients who had Ebola got over it, and now they have all these circulating antibodies, right? And so what if they donate their blood or their plasma to get those antibodies out of? And so several of the, um, of the U.S. survivors, they have gone and done that, um, been able to donate to other patients with Ebola, and it, it seems to help. Um, so basically what you're trying to do is give those antibodies to somebody um, who currently has Ebola, that they can help use to augment to fight off this infection. Success rate is largely still unknown, but again, the, the few cases, the, the ends of one here and there that have happened, seem to help. They seem to work, and relatively limited as far as overall potential consequences. You know, obviously, you're worried about any other diseases that maybe the donor might have had, but we can screen for different things. And so relatively safe to try, again, depending on the the. Um, typing and crossing and making sure that they're a match for those blood products. Uh, but it's been a fairly interesting, fairly successful, at least seemingly, um, for some patients. Additional experimental therapies that are continuing to be looked at. Other additional antibodies. You know, antibodies in general for a lot of medicine, especially infectious sorts of, of diseases, um, are really being looked at a lot. You know, maybe not always tobacco plants because of the inefficiencies of the growing cycle of a tobacco plant, but other ways to produce these antibodies. Um, Antisense oligonucleotides, which, again, essentially just allows the body to fight off um, that disease a little bit better. Inflammatory modulators, coagulopathy modulators um, to try to, to prevent some of the inflammatory things we see, to try to prevent some of the coagulation problems that we see with this disease. And then a couple antivirals. Um, Bafipravir and Brincidovir. There's some ongoing research in those. You know, most of the common antivirals that we are familiar with to treat, you know, hepatitis, influenza, and others, they're not effective, uh, at least we don't think so, against Ebola. Um, but Bafipravir and Brincidovir have had some research, or at least 
um, laboratory sorts of things that seem to, to be indicative that, hey, this might help. And the last thing to really talk about with Ebola and, and maybe where the, the treatment is going is to what can we do to prevent the patient from ever needing treatment? Can we give them a vaccine? I imagine many of you um, have heard about some of the different vaccine trials that have been going on. Um, so this one is looking at the chimpanzee adenovirus. And so it's actually um, shown, at least again, an animal, in a small animal study, to have 100% efficacy. Um, currently, right now, in large parts of Liberia and in other areas where we saw Ebola, there are the vaccine programs going on. Now, with Ebola having died out, which is a good thing, it's a bad thing for testing, you know, vaccines, right? Um, so overall, it, we're not really, it's going to be hard to really tell unless the unfortunate case of another outbreak of Ebola um, would occur as to how effective some of these vaccines might be. Um, the last one is this recombinant vesicular stoma, stomata, stomatitis um, vaccine. And so again, 20, um, uh, 20 animal studies showed very good results. However, um, trial in humans similarly like the previous one, is still ongoing. Um, and so it'll be interesting, I think, to see what results they're able to get from these vaccine studies. Um, but right now, we just really don't know. We don't think they're harmful, so there's that at least that going for It's a matter of whether or not how much they help. All right, moving on to a different one, Chagas disease, also known as American trypanosomiasis, not to be confused with African trypanosomiasis, um, which are, are different, um, potentially life-threatening. Um, it's, it's something that a lot of people here in the United States have. Roughly 300,000 people in the United States currently have Chagas disease. And every once in a while you hear stories, somebody wants to give a blood um, donation, and they got a call from the blood donation center that they, that they should go see an infectious disease specialist. Um, and a lot of times that's how these Chagas patients are, are caught. Because many of them are asymptomatic. So largely we see this in Central and South America. Um, six to seven million people estimated to be infected worldwide. That number is probably a lot higher than that, but that's at least the, the World Health Organization's estimate. And again, the CDC estimates that there's around 300,000 here in the United States, largely in immigrant populations um, who have migrated from Central and or South America. There have been cases of autochthonous transmission. There's your, your vocabulary word for the day. Um, autochthonous means essentially that you got it in that country. So there have been cases of people actually living in the United States, never having gone to an endemic area, and gotten Chagas disease. Um, now, it, most of the time it's suspected that it's been close contact with somebody who did have um, Chagas disease. Not necessarily easily transmitted that way, um, but there have been autochthonous cases of it here in the United States. Looking at it, so how do you usually get it? I'm going to jump ahead a slide, oops, two slides, from this guy. Um, so this is the bug that typically you see it. This is the reduvid or the kissing bug. Um, the triatamine bug is another name for it. Um, so they tend to live in the house of these people from Central and South America, usually in a grass-thatched house, um, so the, where the roof is made up of grass and other sorts of things. And, and so they like to live in there. They love that environment or behind a picture frame. And then at night, they'll come out, and they'll bite. They'll feed on, on the, the person. In the process of feeding, they defecate. And that's where you actually get the infection. Is not from them actually feeding on you, but then you'll start to itch the spot where it was. 
And by itching it, you'll rub. A lot of time, I'm doing it to my eye because a lot of times that's where we'll see these infections. Um, but in the process of doing that, they'll rub some of the feces into the eye or into the bite mark where it was, and that's where you actually get um, the infection in most cases. So feces typically rubbed into the bite, the eyes or the mouth, and then you get the transmission that way. Now looking at, this is the where in the United States we actually see this triatomine bug, this reduvid or kissing bug, whatever you want to call it. So you can see a large part of the United States has it. Um, it's Kentucky, Ohio, you know, pretty much anywhere north of, or I'm sorry, south of, of Ohio, um, south of you know, Nebraska, we see a lot of this. Um, so here we see this. This was actually a picture taken um, on my driveway this last summer in northwest Ohio. Um, so we see these bugs. The vector for this disease is actually here in the United States. Um, we don't find, at least so far, maybe other than there's been some cases, questionable cases in South Texas, where they've maybe found some bugs that have this. But for the most part, yes, we have these bugs throughout most of the United States, so the vector is here. But we don't see a lot of, of um, trypanosomiasis carrying reduvid bugs. So, Chagas. Some cases are asymptomatic. Again, many cases, um, you might, you don't necessarily get this. But this Chagoma, what this um, person has above their eye is called a Chagoma. Um, and so that's where she probably got bitten, rubbed some of that fecal material into either her eye or the bite itself, which a lot of times they like to, to bite right around the eye. Symptoms, again, relatively benign. You know, straightforward sorts of symptoms that we've all had. We've all had... Uh, a spot on our arm or somewhere that got infected or got a raise. We're like, what happened there? Um, fever, rash, wheezing, nausea, and vomiting. Again, stuff that we've all experienced at one uh, time or another. So chronic phase. Many patients will get over the acute phase, and they're just fine. It's flu-like sorts of symptoms. They'll put up with them for a period of time, and they go away, and they go on with their life, and don't ever think about it again. For some patients... 75%, they become chronic carriers of this disease, but they never really have any additional symptoms. So those are those patients who are going in and donating blood and getting that phone call or that letter in the mail saying, you probably really should see an infectious disease specialist. 25, though, percent of cases have cardiac or GI sorts of, of significant problems. I'm looking at cardiac. We see a lot of heart failure in this, these patients. We see a lot of arrhythmias in these patients. Um, looking from a digestive perspective, we see megacolon, which is where your colon enlarges um, too much, esophagitis, constipation, and difficulty swallowing. And so we see a lot of, of cardiac and GI things. And so now, from what I understand, in some heart failure clinics in North Carolina, we seem to see a lot of Chagas associated in North Carolina, South Carolina, for some reason, um, with the immigrant population, now they actually screen for Chagas disease in new patients with heart failure just to try to rule in or rule out that this is what actually is going on. Um, so you might see that depending on where you're located and the significance of Chagas in that particular area. All right, so how do we actually treat patients with Chagas disease? Largely, like I said, patients will get over those initial symptoms without any treatment at all. However, for patients um, who are more severely ill or have developed a chronic disease, uh, we might use something called benzinidazole, which is not something you can get in your local pharmacy, not something you can get at your local hospital pharmacy. You actually have to call the CDC directly 
and they'll walk you through step by step the treatment of it. Um, it it's different protocols for different people based on weight, based on age, based on other things. And so I didn't try to get into that because the CDC is essentially going to say, we'll ship you the drug, but you have to do what we tell you to do sort of thing. Um, so weight-based, twice daily for up to 60 days. Um, very good at curing uh, patients who are still in that acute phase and preventing them from becoming chronic. Less effective at actually treating those patients who have chronic disease. And so what do you do then for the chronic patients? Well, you treat the symptoms that they have. If they've developed heart failure, you treat them with beta blockers and other drugs like we would typically use for heart failure. Um, if they develop constipation, um, then we might we, we go down just the, the realms of like treating a patient with constipation. If they develop um, where their large bowel, their large their colon grows too big, then they might have some surgical reduction therapies and other things. But largely, chronic disease is more difficult to treat um, than the acute phase. Problems with benzodiazepines are the adverse drug reactions. Many patients can't tolerate them. 40% or so of patients are going to experience um, nausea, vomiting, anorexia, insomnia are the most common. Um, but you also get some disulfiram-like reactions, so it's important to recommend your patients not to drink any alcohol. Um, dermatitis is also a potential adverse reaction for those as well. Another drug that's also available only from the CDC, at least in the United States, is nifertamox. Again, it's a weight-based. This one, though, patients have to take for up to four times a day and for as long as 90 days. Um, so it's more difficult from the number of doses that the patient actually has to take. And it's, it's usually not as effective. So we don't see as much nifertamox used as benzonidazole. But patients who maybe tr had benzonidazole and it didn't work, they might try nifertamox. Additional problems with nifertamox is that the adverse reactions tend to be even worse than benzonidazole. Um, some estimates are as high as 80% of patients actually have adverse drug reactions from this. Um, so it's very difficult to try to get a patient who has severe nausea and vomiting to take this four times a day for 90 days. Um, very, very difficult to get patients to actually complete their treatment cycle if they're using nifertamox. So research, what are we doing? Oh, mostly vector control. Because, again, we don't have drugs that are really that effective for treating this disease. So largely vector control. So can we get rid of the host animals that these reduvid bugs are actually getting it from um, within Central and South America? There's also been several vaccines that have been looked at, none that have been real promising or real close to being approved by anybody. Um, and as far as new drugs, there's not much research in looking at new drugs. So Chagas disease is, is not nearly as exciting about evolving therapies as Ebola. Um, and some of the other, other things we're going to talk about, which is kind of surprising to me just because of the sheer number, 300,000 people um, in the United States who have it. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, to try to get big pharma to invest in something that only 300,000 people might benefit from, um, there hasn't been a lot of push to do that. Um, so hopefully there will be a, a small pharmaceutical company, you know, try to get an orphan drug status for something um, to try to look at it. But right now it's, it's been very limited so far. All right, so moving on to malaria. Every year, we see lots of deaths around the world due to malaria. Um, world Health Organization estimates around 500 to 600,000 every year. Um, actual numbers, some people said maybe two, three, four times that. Very difficult to ascertain because a lot of the malaria deaths are in small villages where very few people live. And they have a high infant mortality rate, even excluding malaria. And so it can be difficult for those individuals to really know for sure what's going on. 
2013, there's estimated to be around 200 million cases of malaria worldwide. You know, fortunately in the United States, um, yes, we do see malaria here. And we don't see any, usually we don't see any transmission from, you know, within the United States. It's usually in travelers. Right around 1,500 to 2,000 people every year bring malaria back. Now, having said we don't see much malaria transmission in the United States, go back 100 years, and we saw a lot of it, right? You don't even really go back that far. But we used to see a lot of malaria in the United States, definitely in Kentucky and points south. Um, looking at, you know, other statistics, there have been, this is largely not reported, but there actually have been cases of malaria in the United States who didn't travel anywhere and still got malaria while living here. Since 1957, there have been 63 cases where a mosquito bit somebody who came back from a country and then bit somebody else. And that person who came back had malaria, and then that mosquito transmitted to somebody else. Been very small, you know, two, three, four people at most who've gotten malaria that way um, from one from one person. And that, you know, fortunately, um, that person's able to get, you know, get treated or or whatever, um, at least be quarantined, so that other mosquitoes are not coming into to contact with them. But there have actually been, you know, you always hear about, you know, that mosquito on that airplane as you're flying home. Does it have malaria, and is it giving anybody on that airplane malaria? And reality is, is it could be, but the stronger reality is, is it's very, very unlikely. Um, so, again, there have been 63 cases since 1957, roughly one a year, um, of, cases, of cases that were transmitted that way. So very unlikely, but, but not completely um, out of the question. So how do you get it? Well, we all, I think, most of us know anyways, that it's transmitted by mosquitoes, the Anopheles mosquitoes. And yes, just like the Reduvid bugs, we have these mosquitoes in the United States, the ones that can carry malaria. Now, again, fortunately, um, through you know, the eradication efforts that were put in place in the 30s and 40s and before, we largely don't see, you know, we don't, or not largely, we don't see malaria in the United States anymore, um, but we definitely do have the mosquitoes that can carry malaria here. Um, the four protozoal species that actually carried are um, plasmodium, or different plasmodium species, falciparum, vivax, malaria, and ovale. Um, so there's four main types of malaria. Two distinct patterns, stable malaria. Stable malaria, just real quick, is where there's malaria like year-round. Um, other parts of the world have unstable malaria. We, usually unstable malaria happens where you have rainy seasons and dry seasons. And rainy season brings out the mosquitoes. And so you get, you know, large chunk of malaria patients hitting, you know, at certain times for four, five, six months of the year. The other rest of the year, you don't see as much malaria because they're not there. What we see in those unstable areas is we tend to see some malaria cases tend to be more severe. You know, the good thing about being in contact with malaria-containing mosquitoes year-round is your body starts to adapt and, and develop antibodies against it. And so each subsequent attack or each subsequent infection tends to be less severe than the one prior, assuming you have a normal functioning immune system. But in cases where there's unstable, where you don't have that constant contact sort of thing with, with these mosquitoes, you might see uh, more severe cases because the, their immune systems aren't as ramped up to fight it off. Symptoms again, flu-like. You know, our typical flu-like symptoms, fever, headache, chills, vomiting. Uh, you know, the always good advice is if you come back from serving in a malaria country and you develop these sorts of things, you have malaria until you're told otherwise. Um, so, you know, consider yourself to have malaria. It's something you should go get checked out. You know, even if, if you, you know, typically flu-like symptoms, most of us wouldn't probably go to the doctor for that sort of thing. Um, but if you just came back from a malaria endemic country within the last month, two months, 
you should probably go get checked out just to at least rule out. Severe symptoms um, tend to happen more in the children um, and pregnant uh, women. Anemia, metabolic acidosis, respiratory depression, cerebral edema, and hypoglycemia. You really have to watch the hypoglycemia um, in, in pregnancy. So management. All patients who have confirmed malaria should get anti-malaria medications. They're actually very effective um, when they're given to these patients. Many patients, depending on the severity of the fever, depending on the severity of any uh, pain that they may have, may also benefit from getting things like acetaminophen, ibuprofen, um, or aspirin, assuming they're not children. Um, assess the ABCs that we're used to thinking about um, in the healthcare world all the time because that's going to be your sign that this patient is going from just, from just a malaria patient to being a significant severe malaria patient is when those problems start to increase. So malaria management kind of continued. We really have to watch the hypoglycemia again, especially in pregnancy. Um, like we talked about with Ebola, we can see co-infection with different bacteria. Your immune system becomes so focused in on uh, fighting off malaria that your common bacteria that you're coming into uh, contact with more often can ramp up and get that foothold in you. So you, a lot of times we'll see patients who are getting both malaria medications and your typical antibiotics uh, as well. Dehydration, again, is a problem. Um, oxygen mechanical ventilation, if patients get that far, and if they need blood pressure support, um, you may need some inotropic therapy to help increase their blood pressure um, as well. The, the old standby that we use for treating um, malaria are the artemisinin or the artemether-based um, combination therapies. So these are a combination of artemisinin derivatives as well as additional antimalarials. You know, things like mefloquine or maybe even chloroquine, although due to resistance we see less and less of that. Um, but you're, the ones that you probably have taken um, as malaria prophylaxis medications, largely in combination with artemisinin, to help treat uh, patients who actually have malaria. Um, Non-artemisinin-based combination therapies are not recommended. So we are always recommend, uh, World Health Organization, CDC recommends, that you get an artemisinin-based combination therapy and not just try to treat it with methylquin or chloroquine or any of the, the more traditional thought of antimalarials alone. We usually want to add in. Same sort of idea as when we treat patients with TB, HIV, AIDS. Try to attack it from multiple areas so that that, um, that disease, in this case malaria, um, becomes less likely to be uh, real problematic. Some of the more common ones and the ones that are actually uh, available in the United States will be the top two, artemether and lumefantrine, um, coartem, riamet, or artesunate and mefloquine. Again, not something that your local everyday hospital or drugstore is going to have on stock. Uh, doesn't pay them to do well for the 1,500 or so patients per year have it, but something that can be shipped next day either from the CDC or in some cases even the wholesaler for that pharmacy as well. Um, some of them that if you're overseas that are not available in the United States, but if you're overseas you might see would be the artesunate and sulfidoxine pyrimethamine. Um, that one used to be available in the United States, but is no longer uh, commercially available, uh, as well as the amodiaquin um, component, also not available um, in the United States at this time. Again, many are in development. There's a growing research. Malaria gets a lot of attention, so it gets a lot of funding, and so it's, it's, there's a lot of research going into treating malaria. Primaquin is the drug that you often hear about malaria getting into the liver. You know, the other drugs do a very good job at hitting malaria that's in the bloodstream. Primaquin does a good job um, at try, helping to eradicate malaria from the liver. 
Um, so it's the, the treatment of liver stage malaria. Um, patients who get in their liver, if it's not treated appropriately, they keep getting malaria symptoms over and over and over again. And we may eliminate from their blood, but it's still hiding out in the, the liver, so it can keep coming back. Um, adults, typically a 14-day period. Again, body weight dosed um, are all that they need, and they'll, they'll usually be cured at least for that round of malaria. Now, if they go back and they get it again, you know, then we may have to treat them again. Vaccines. Um, every year, two, three, four years, you hear of this drug company that has this vaccine for malaria that they're all excited about. And every year, two, three, four years, you read a newspaper or a journal article that they've stopped development of that because it just didn't pan out the way they thought it would, which is unfortunate. unfortunate. But, you know, th- there's still some ongoing. There's this um, RTS vaccine that's currently in phase three. It showed a 51% um, reduction. Um, so 51% is not usually, you know, what the FDA, World Health Organization, they're looking for much higher numbers than that. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, if you're able to cut 51% of the infections of malaria, that's a lot, many millions fewer cases of malaria per year, um, many, you know, fewer, by hundreds of thousands cases of malaria that are, patients who are actually dying per year. Um, so this one, it seems to, to there seems to be, um, some thinking that this may be something that, that the malaria researchers can hang their hats on and say, we've finally done it. So we'll see. There's at least 20 other vaccine uh, for malaria in development. Um, so, again, there's always a couple dozen or so in, in the pipeline. Whether or not they, they will actually get to the stage three trials, who knows. Um, but hopefully something will be available in the not-too-distant future. All right, dengue fever. Um, typically, we think of in tropical, subtropical again as well. Um, patients typically feel better within a week. Flu-like sorts of symptoms can be very debilitating. World Health Organization estimates 100 million infections per year, or up to 100 million, um, with up to 22,000 deaths. So the mortality is, is not that great. Um, yes, you know, for the 22,000 and their families is obviously significant. Um, but from a percentage basis, um, the mortality is not real severe. Um, looking at it, several thousand cases imported in the United States each year, and this is one where we actually see that autochthonous transmission. So in 2014, there were six cases in patients in Florida who didn't leave Florida, and they were able to, or they got dengue fever. Um, so transmission is, again, a virus. Uh, looking at it, again, transmitted by mosquitoes that we can find largely throughout the United States, these, sorts of, or these two types of mosquitoes. Um, now endemic in roughly 100 million countries, or 100 million countries, that's a lot of countries, Charlie. Um, 100 countries. Um, so, so largely we see this in a good chunk of the world. Um, and, and, and Dengue, again, has a foothold to some extent, or starting to try to get a foothold in Florida. Um, there's also in the past been cases um, in Hawaii and South Texas. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with Dengue in the United States. Again, looking at the symptoms, largely your, your typical flu-like symptoms um, with maybe some rash thrown in, and usually a pretty high fever, um, more than what you would expect with a flu. You're talking 103, 104, um, so very high fever. Usually doesn't last very long, that fever, but um, can be very damaging in some patients. Severe symptoms we don't see as well. Um, but deadly complications can happen. You get some plasma leaking um, where you just kind of get fluid that starts flowing, respiratory dis- distress. Um, because of that leaking, you can get um, 
fluid accumulation, you can get bleeding, um, organ impairment as well. So largely, what are you looking for? Um, these warning signs that occur three to seven days. So the warning signs are the severe vomiting, rapid breathing, um, blood in the vomit. Uh, those are the, the big three that when you start to see those, you think, okay, we've got to take this serious. We have to treat this patient to the best of our ability. Um, again, in the United States, we have the capability to treat these patients usually very well. You know, those six people in Florida last year, they all were fine. Um, they all got over it. Again, in a lot of the world, not always the case. Treatments, um, we don't have any direct treatment for dengue fever. Um, so supportive care, acetaminophen, ibuprofen to help with the fever, to help with the pain, um, and then fluids. Um, if they need blood pressure support, we can definitely give some, some medications to help with that as well. Um, but largely those three classes or those three drugs will treat most patients here in the United States, and, and they'll be just fine. They might be admitted um, to the hospital for a couple, three days, maybe longer if you're in a teaching hospital just because I want to bring everybody through and talk about you, um, <laughs> because we don't see many of them. Um, but for the most part, uh, patients here in the United States will be just fine. Research. Um, largely, research for dengue fever is just targeted towards a vaccine. Um, there are some antivirals that are being looked at because, it, again, it is a virus um, not expected, though, in the next five years that we'll probably be any closer to any sorts of new drugs and, and probably not any new vaccines within the next five years for dengue fever, uh, which is unfortunate for the, the, the many people around the world um, who get dengue fever. All right, chikungunya, the big one that was in the news um, a couple years ago. In 2013, we first started to see it in the Caribbean. Um, before then, it was largely just in Africa and Asia. Definitely something that they saw there, definitely something they were aware of there, largely something that here in the United States and, and Western, or the Western world we didn't see. 2014, there were actually 11 locally acquired cases in Florida. Um, most of the patients, though, you know, looking at 2014, there were 20, almost 2,800 cases from travelers. Uh, most of those have been patient, or patients who had traveled um, to the Caribbean. Um, whether it was for a honeymoon, for a vacation, for a mission trip, didn't matter. Uh, actually, I was, was talking uh, just last weekend with a nurse who had been in, in Haiti recently, and they're still seeing a lot of chikungunya there in Haiti. Um, last year, there were a couple members of their team who they think probably had it with the symptoms that they were exhibiting. Here in the United States, though, in, the, in 2015, obviously we still have a little bit of time left, um, but, but up until this was, those were probably numbers from early October, there were just 524 cases. Um, so it seems to be kind of ramping down, it, probably largely just due to um, we're becoming more aware of it. The, the, they're doing better vector control in some of the Caribbean countries. You know, obviously, those countries largely rely on tourism. So anything that is, is hurting their economy, which something like chikungunya can, um, they're going to try to get rid of as quickly as possible. Um, so hopefully, but we'll see, but hopefully, you know, this was kind of a one-year flare-up, and we'll see it continuing to, to go down as far as uh, what we see here in the United States. Um, these are states uh, last year, 2014, that reported cases of chikungunya. So you can see pretty much somebody everywhere had chikungunya. Florida's dark blue because that's where we saw locally acquired cases. Um, so largely, you know, everywhere um, except for Wyoming and North Dakota, uh, we didn't see chikungunya. This is this year. So you can see there's fewer states reporting uh, chikungunya as of October 13th. Um, and, and largely there's no, or not largely, there are no dark blues. So no cases, again, 
um, in 2015, at least up until October 13th um, of that. Uh, the CDC actually has an interesting site on chikungunya um, that you can get this information from, as does Florida. Florida has an arbovirus uh, database that they update things like dengue fever, chikungunya, um, and they update it weekly. They're reportable diseases to their health department, and you can see um, maps, but there'll be countywide maps of Florida, and they'll show these things, which can be interesting to look at um, if you're supposed to be studying for an exam or something and, and you want a study break. How do you get chikungunya? Again, it's the same sorts of mosquitoes that we've been talking about all, all, all the time here. Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, um, which, again, found throughout the United States, uh, found throughout the Caribbean, found throughout the world, except probably other than, other than Antarctica, um, you'll see these mosquitoes. Symptoms. Fever and joint pain. So how do you differentiate this from the flu? Again, very, very difficult. Um, other symptoms, headache, muscle pain, joint swelling, rash. Um, usually patients feel better in a week. So, you know, short term, seven days, ten days, maybe two weeks, and patients start to feel better. Largely without any treatment, um, they start to feel better. Joint pain in some individuals um, can last for as long as six months, and, and there are in some case reports of it even lasting longer than that. So you may have the joint pain for some reason seems to hang on a little bit longer. Treatment, there's nothing specific. It's supportive care. So again, your fluids, your acetaminophen, your ibuprofen is what, are what we use um, to treat chikungunya. And again, they work well for most patients. United States, you know, no deaths. Largely, this is not a disease that people die from. It's a problematic disease. It's no fun to have it. You can tell from the symptoms. But for the most part, most people do not, um, you know, have any significant um, uh, abnormality or any significant problem after the initial week or two weeks. Future therapies, um, there's a vaccine that's currently in development that's had some, uh, in small studies, had some very good results that seem to show um, at least a 75% effectiveness. Uh, now, will we ever see large-scale deployment of chikungunya vaccine? It's, it's hard to tell. Um, in the grand scheme of things, this is not the most, you know, devastating sorts of infectious disease, but if we're able to develop a treatment, it can help um, some patients, so we might see something. Um, from a direct drug perspective, there's no antivirals, you know, nothing specific in development um, at all. So nothing real promising on that front. All right, loss of fever. The last one we're really going to talk about. Why loss of fever? Well, as, you, as we started with, last May I was talking with some individuals about what all we wanted to put into this. And right then there was somebody admitted in New York with loss of fever. So we're like, let's throw in loss of fever. Now, fortunately... Um, the, you know, the, the media at that time was, it blew up for a day or two, and it was like, this is the new Ebola, loss of fever, because there's somebody in a New York hospital um, who has it. Um, but that was the only person. Um, so largely, it's not something that comes back to the United States, uh, but we decided uh, to go ahead and leave it in here just because it is something that, again, six months ago really hit the news pretty hard. Um, since 1969, though, there's only been six cases in the United States. So um, you're very, very unlikely to see a case of this transmitted back to the United States. Um, but in Western Africa, um, it, uh, you might see it. 100,000 to 300,000 cases per year, the World Health Organization estimates, um, with roughly 5,000 deaths. Um, so definitely is, is something that is there, um, not something that always gets back, brought back to the United States. How do you get it? Um, usually by uh, rodent. Um, so rodent feces, rodent urine, 
um, infects a person. Once one person gets infected, it can become human to human through close contact, um, but typically it's through that um, mouse sort of vector. Symptoms. Most patients, 80%, 4 out of every 5, um, have no symptoms. So largely it can go unrecognized, undiagnosed, and patients are fine. You know, where that becomes problematic is there can be person-to-person transmission. So just because you don't have symptoms to it, even though you have it, doesn't mean the person you may give it to won't have symptoms. So you may see patients like that who are like, there's no mice living in my house, there's no anything. And so a lot of times, from what I understand, in Western Africa, they may go ahead and test the whole family um, for loss of fever if one person comes down with it because of the high percentage of patients who do actually or, or have no symptoms. Those who do experience symptoms, largely at first they're flu-like again. So add this to your differential if you're working in Western Africa when you hear flu-like symptoms. However, it can progress to GI, cardiac. You can get some arrhythmias um, as well as respiratory and nervous system. Treatments, again, for the most part, fluids. If you have patients who have blood pressure, um, it was dropping. We can't see shock um, in these patients when we have to reverse their hypotension. Um, who, are, who are those? <coughs> So mostly uh, fluids. There has actually been some use of IV ribavirin, which has been around for forever. Um, but it does seem to help with patients who progress, especially beyond the, the flu-like symptoms. Um, so you give IV ribavirin, and that does seem to help. Um, currently, there's no vaccine, but there are several vaccines that are being looked at as potential options for this. Um, how far those will actually get in development, I have no idea. Um, but there are a couple that are out there and being looked at. All right, so that's kind of the end. But before we, we get to the fun part, or potentially fun part, um, we have a few questions. So which of the following is the year when Ebola was first identified? C, 1976. Very good. You were paying attention even at the very beginning. Um, so 1976 was when it was first identified. Again, a lot of people you just talk to on the streets think it's a brand new thing. 2013, 2014, but it's been around for um, even a, a little bit longer than I have been. Um, so 2000, or 1976 was when it first was identified. Which of the following is caused by a virus? One of these questions students always hate. Choose all that apply. You have thoughts in your mind. Which ones are not caused by a virus? C and B. So Chagas disease and malaria. Even though they can have, you know, the flu-like symptoms, which we think of influenza being a virus, um, we can still, or those are not caused by viruses. So Ebola, chikungunya, um, dengue, and Lhasa are all caused um, by a virus. Which of the following has not been transmitted in the United States locally? So not been transmitted from person to person or, you know, vector to person here within the United States. Another question students hate. None of those are the right answer. F, they've all been transmitted locally. Um, so we actually see um, cases of, of all of these have been transmitted locally. You know, think back to Ebola, you know, with the nurses. Um, chikungunya, again, we've seen cases in Florida. Dengue fever, we've seen cases in Florida. Malaria, you know, we've seen those 63 cases since 1957, so not many, um, but we have seen it. And then Chagas disease, again, you know, roughly 300,000 people with, with some of those um, having been transmitted here in the United States um, through close contact. All right, that is the end. I have a few minutes left if anybody has any questions. Yes? Um, 
Um, I don't know about inhalation. Um, body uh, fluids, um, if you get fluids, whether it's saliva, blood, whatever, um, you can get that. I don't know about inhalation um, with that. I, I would, yeah, I would, would think if you get, you know, fecal material, rodent fecal material that has aerosolized, for lack of a better term, that you probably could. Uh, I don't know. Does anyone know the case reports of of that? I don't. I don't remember reading that. But yeah, the hantavirus and others, you can get that way. So I don't know. Chikungunya, um, largely what they'll do is, is they'll look for um, antibodies against it, so they'll draw blood and, and run it through a lab and, and look for the antibodies. What's that? When do they become positive? How long after? After their infection, are they positive? No, when do they become positive? Or if someone comes to me... Oh, if, if they, they have it? So, it so how long after they were actually infected do they become positive? Um, I, I'm, you know, most of those viruses, it's pretty quick. Um, so, you know, like even the rapid flu tests and things like that, you get pretty quick results after the initial infection. My, right. Um, so my guess would be within a couple, couple three days, but that's just a guess. I don't know how long the, the, the positivity of chikungunya is, how long it takes to get to a full enough thing to, to be detectable in a lab. Anybody? Yes? One of the United States maps you had for one of the early things uh-huh. you were talking about, had uh, West Virginia had a different yeah, yeah, yeah. shading on it. So with the triatamine bug, um, what, what, what that was showing was West Virginia in that, in that one map um, for the vector of Chagas disease, the triatamine or reduvid bug, whatever you want to call it, West Virginia was, had a different shading, and there's another state, I forget now what it was. Um, that's just saying that we haven't found those bugs there, but when you look at all the surrounding states, they're probably there. Um, so that different shading was just saying that um, we haven't actually found them, um, but looking at it, you know, they're right in the middle of several states that are surrounding it that do, that it's probably there and just not been studied or not found. Yeah, I forgot to point that out, which is, can be in a kind of confusing thing. All right, well, thank you for your attention. If you have other questions, I'll be up here for a few minutes yet.